Hello, friends. Welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. I'm Kara, your host, your salonier. I'm here to offer you sonic comfort and conversation because you don't have time for bullshit or burnout. Besides Le Vital Core Salon listeners, you know who else definitely doesn't have time for bullshit and burnout? Working adults who decide to go back to school, also known as post-traditional students. And this is exactly the group of folks that today's guest, Sarah Saxton Frump, serves through her organization, Peloton U, in Austin, Texas. Sarah's the co-founder and the chief operating officer at Peloton U. The organization is committed to ensuring working adults can earn a college degree on time. She said something during the interview that has really reverberated for me. It was, picture going back to school with nothing else changing in your life. I can't imagine how challenging that is for some folks. Yet with the program that she designs and leads, their students are graduating at five times the rate of their peers with little to no student debt. Outside of all of her operational functions, she also trains new organizations to launch programs like Peloton U in their own communities. This is huge. We're going to learn so much more about Peloton U and competency-based learning, but we're also going to learn so much about Sarah the person. Sarah got really real during this episode, opening up about really growing to hate the work she was great at and how that led to a mental breakdown, but also a turn in the road and watching her path move towards healing. And she was so candid and articulate about what it took to purge the gremlins, to stop the playback on the shame tapes that we all play on a repeating loop in our heads, and what it took to celebrate her five-year anniversary. I can't thank Sarah enough for really, truly showing up. It's so important for all of us to connect, learn, and grow from each other's experiences and stories. Please share this podcast with one human being you know that might resonate with any of the topics that we discussed today. It will help amplify the work Sarah is doing at Peloton U and it will help me continue to grow Le Vital Course Salon podcast. Voila, meet Sarah Saxton Frump. Sarah, you are the co-founder and chief operating officer at Peloton U in Austin, Texas. Can you talk to me about a million things related to this work, <laughs> like the mission, the impact you're making, your role? Where do we want to start today? Oh, goodness. Everywhere. And I will tell you all of <laughs> all of the things. Um, so the mission of Peloton U is to provide a really high quality college pathway for working adults, which are not a group of people that most folks think of when they think about college. Um, and what we have found and what researchers are looking at and reporting on over and over again is that m- who we think the, the traditional college student is has actually completely changed. So 70% of college students today are either older than 24 or they're commuting to school or they're attending part-time, they're taking care of a kid, right? So they're not that 
you know, bright-eyed 18-year-old going to school, living on campus, you know, reading Nietzsche on the quad between classes and, like, smoking (laughs) hand-rolled cigarettes. Like, that is not actually the norm anymore, which is really cool to see college continue uh, to be something that folks look to as a way to learn and to grow their career and to accelerate the path of their families. But because college was designed for that sort of original, traditional 18-year-old, what we're seeing is that a lot of those working adults are like the fancy term is post-traditional student. That's the older than 24 commuting, et cetera, et cetera. But the post-traditional student is really struggling to thrive in the system, the way it's currently designed. And so at Peloton, we have redesigned the college experience. So it's actually built around the needs of those students. And that means it's got to be really flexible and really supportive. The core piece of our work is providing a way for people who want to earn a degree to be able to do it without having to quit their jobs or spend a ton of time away from their families and their kids, but are able to actually fit school in around the margins of their life so that they can both work and go to school at the same time. This is so fascinating to me because I feel like I'm so personally far away from college that it's hard to Mm -hmm. even remember what it looked like as a traditional student never mind as a post-traditional student. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe we can back up to how did you get to this point? Like where did you decide that this was a problem that you wanted to dig into? That's a great question. Uh, I didn't really. <laughs> it sort of <laughs> found me, sincerely. So my background, so I graduated from college in 2007. Um, so long enough ago that it feels foreign, but not so long ago that I don't still sort of miss reading Nietzsche on the quad with my hand-rolled cigarettes. <laughs> um, but when I graduated from college, you know, the the sort of two sexy options were consulting or Teach for America. Uh, and I was very torn between the two, but ended up joining Teach for America and moving from the Northeast to the border of Texas and Mexico, where I lived and taught for two years. And I loved it. I taught high school history at Pace High School, Go Vikings, uh, in Brownsville, Texas, and nearly stayed, ended up moving up to Austin and joined a really high-performing charter school here in its second year um, called Kip Austin Collegiate. And I spent five years there convinced that my calling in life was to serve first-generation, low-income, high school students of color in ensuring that all of their talents and skills and hard work could lead them to the life that they hoped, right? That they got access to a really high quality education, both with us in high school and in college. And so two things happened concurrently that led me to Peloton and led me to this challenge that post-traditional students were facing. The first was uh, I got promoted. <laughs> um, so I, at 27, got offered the job of principal, taking over for this the founder of the high school that I worked at. And this was and at Kip Austin Collegiate. Kip, yeah, so I, okay. Yeah, so it's Kip Austin Collegiate. I got offered that job as principal, and that I I was. I mean, that was it. I'd arrived. I was 27. I got to my dream job, and that was what I was going to do forever. Turns out that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, and Life is a, funny like that, right? Funny, yeah, really funny. And there's a, a, a really long and messy and beautiful burnout story that we can get into around that. But to answer the question that you've actually asked right now, um, once I moved into the administration positions, right, I was an assistant principal and then a principal, I started looking at the data from a, a higher perspective, right? So rather than looking at my department or my own class or my grade level, I was starting to look at all of our students and our alums. And what we were seeing is that even though we thought we were preparing them for college, we were still barely beating the national average for college graduation. So students from the lowest income quartile in the nation have an 8% chance of graduating with a bachelor's degree within six years of graduating high school. Whoa. Students from the highest income quartile have an 80% chance. So there's Whoa. A, yeah, there's a factor of 10x based just on the amount of money your family makes. That's it. Whoa. And of course, then that has, yeah, that ends up having a lot of implications around racial and ethnic lines, around immigration status. Um, but there is a, it's troubling <laughs> to say the least, if not appalling. And yeah, that's that's a more accurate descriptor, yeah, I think. Yeah, appalling. I can be very dramatic in some, you know, like... You can be as dramatic as you want on this show. Very <laughs> hot under the collar. Great, because it gets me real pissed. Um, <laughs> Rightfully yeah. so. Thank you. So we were seeing our students have about like a 35% college graduation rate, which is the average for Americans. I think the stat is that 33% of Americans hold a bachelor's degree, which is typically less than people think that it is. Anyways, so going back, so we, I was looking at the data from a bigger perspective and seeing that our students were doing better than they should based on the statistics, but not nearly as well as we knew they were capable of and as we hoped they would sort of in aggregate. And as we started to dive into the data, what we were finding was that some schools were incredible at supporting first-generation students or students of color, and some schools were really terrible at it. And so we started to do a lot of work around college matching and helping students um, apply to schools that were a good fit for them, but that also gave them better odds of completing, right? So, and I'm, I'm going to make these numbers up, but let's say that a student is an average student and University A has a 70% graduation rate for minority students. University B has a 45% chance of graduating if you're a minority student. And University C has a 13% chance. We started really encouraging students to look at University A more, and then University B, and maybe skipping University C. Got it. But, but what was happening, I mean, one, teenagers are teenagers, and so... If you like University C, you're going to apply there anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> Funny how this all, like, fails as soon as I, it gets into the hands of of, of kids. Yeah, of kids whose brain is probably not fully formed yet. Oh, no, it's not. I mean, we learn cause and effect at, like, age, oh, goodness, now I don't remember, 15. We just barely learn it then. Like, there's a reason why we're not allowed to rent cars until we're 25. Uh <laughs> So from a high level, started really uncovering the fact that a lot of institutions were just not doing right by first-generation college students or students of color. And then on a personal note, I had actually gotten to work with 15 young men for all four years of their high school experience. And like for whatever reason, I am fairly fluent in 
cranky teenage boy. Like it is, it is a language <laughs> that I speak for whatever reason. A couple of my coworkers used to call me the patron saint of lost boys. There were, you know, it was a couple of us on staff that essentially if there was a, a freshman young man who was acting a fool, it was like call Saxton, call hip, you know, whoever else, Caught like, it out. they'll be able to, they'll be able to help no matter what, even if we had never met the student before, uh, which actually that was not common because we knew everybody. But um, so these young men who called themselves the Saxonites, as in K-N-I-G-H-T-S, uh, were incredible. I had some really high performing students. And then I had some other young men who were surprised to find that they were even going to live until age 18, let alone graduate from high school. And they'd spent four years at a high school that had told them over and over again that they could go to college and they never really believed it. And then I sort of watched them realize that they could actually do it, right? They're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to make it to 18. I'm going to graduate from high school. I could actually go to college. And their GPA was usually like a 1.7. So we're going to start a community college. And I had this moment in particular where one of the young men – Eduardo came back after his, he graduated from high school, came back. He'd started at our local community college. His girlfriend was pregnant and he was going to drop out because he couldn't figure out how to keep going to school and pick up a second job to start saving for his child. And it just, it was just this moment that I'm like, we can do everything in our power to ensure that our students are ready for college and we are still sending them into a system that is not designed to serve them and definitely not designed to serve them if their lives look any more complex than your average 18-year-old. And so my, my passion for the work and for the reason why I co-founded Peloton started with a, a desire to build out a solution for students like Eduardo, right? Hardworking, really smart but had sort of personal circumstances that made it really difficult to fit even something like community college into their schedules, right? So it was like, we, we really needed something that was flexible for them and supportive. And then what I found over time and over the last five years at Peloton is Eduardo grows up and in 30 years, it is even harder for him to go back to school. And so my desire to serve has expanded from this, you know, group of young people to, you know, Patrick, who was 51 when he came to Peloton, who finally believed that he could go back to school and work his job and provide for his family at, I mean, at 50, right? Like, because he had never had a chance when he was younger and it just got harder with time. And so there, I, I probably wouldn't have left Kip, but for the burnout and would have continued to focus my time on the high school end of how we can better create access and equity for all people, regardless of the family they grew up in or their skin color or where they're from or their, you know, how nice they are or whatever. Um, but because of the burnout got sort of um, pushed to consider how I might want to use my skills in another way to solve either the same problem in a different way or to solve a different problem. And that's, that's what brought me to Peloton. Wow, Sarah. <laughs> that was a long story. <laughs> First, thank you for doing the work that you do. It sounds like Thanks. you've uncovered a problem that a lot of people probably weren't looking at. I don't know. Was it, was it a common problem in education? Were people looking at this? 
No, um, yes and no. Or Most looking of, at it, but not taking action on it. Yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, higher ed is a, an interesting beast. People know that our neighbors, our adult neighbors, want more opportunity for themselves and their family. But a lot of the work for adults is focused on sort of workforce development and upskilling and more sort of vocational type skills, uh, which are valuable and a needed piece of the continuum of supports that we offer in a community. Um, But for the most part, the assumption was if you are an adult who wants to go back to school, you're going to have to go the traditional route. So you're going to have to go to community college and then transfer to a local four-year program. And some four-year programs will build out evening classes and the like to try to expand availability for adults. And there's some online programs that are designed for adults, but those typically just sort of take the traditional in-person stuff and stick it into the cloud. And so if, you've, if you're an adult with a really busy schedule and it changes every week, making it to class either in person or to a scheduled online lecture or discussion group is pretty challenging. And so there weren't a lot of people examining sort of the underlying structural issues and how we might turn those on their head or think about them differently to really meet the needs of working adults. So a lot of workforce development stuff that's been really good, but not a lot of um, really complete solutions for associate degrees or bachelor's degrees for the post-traditional student. And I hear what you're saying And I lived it. Probably something that no one listening knows because I rarely talk about it. Mm -hmm. But I grew up in a working class town, for the most part, in central Massachusetts. And my mom had a high school education and came up through the accounts payable and accounting systems and, you know, ended up doing more training and when I was probably like a junior in high school, so this was like back in the 90s, a couple things happened. One, my mother was trying to level up a little mm-hmm. bit and recognized she was hitting a ceiling at what she yep. could do and was really interested in um, business systems. Mm-hmm. And my dad was a police officer, and I think at this point he was probably had worked his way up to being a deputy chief in a small town. And there was a bill in Massachusetts at the time that offered basically a pay grade bump if police officers went back and got more education. So, you know, an associate's degree would bump you up to a certain point and a, you know, a bachelor's degree would bump you up to a certain point. And my dad was in his probably mid fifties by this point. Um, My mother was a bit younger. And I remember in high school, both of my parents going back to community college Uh to work on associate's degrees while I was like, say, sophomore, junior in high school. And it was a comedy of errors. Like it was hysterical. And I remember at one point, and this is, this is ridiculous, I was taking an accounting class in high school and my mother, who was great at accounting, could really like hammer out those 
those T graphs or T charts. <laughs> and my dad was taking a literature class. And I forget what my mom was taking, or maybe she had already finished it at this point. But I remember I was doing my dad's literature homework. My dad was doing the housework and the grocery shopping. And my mother was doing my accounting homework. Because That's we so cool. like at points like we all just had to figure out like who could best do what to get it done. Yeah. Yep. Like, you know, in this like short amount of time. And there was a ton of like, Yup, all right, I'll write the literature paper for my dad. What I mean, what the hell does a cop <laughs> with like twenty nine years experience need literature for at that point yep. in his career? Yeah. So it was but you know, I think I've never really thought about it until you and I are having this conversation, like how wacky and probably stressful that was for my parents. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine if you had little kids and were fighting about money, like financial resources were an issue. Yeah. And I think there's just something so incredibly beautiful and special about kids and parents being in school together, right? Like that is just such an opportunity for sort of like mutual support and encouragement. And it's, it's so cool and you're right, a lot of, especially at our, in Peloton, a lot of our parents have waited until their kids were sort of old enough to manage themselves to go back to school um, as adults because they, there's just, there was no way for them to do it when they were four or six or even, you know, eight years old unless they had, you know, a really robust support system or access to childcare or a partner who could take care of the kids while they were at school. And that's just, that's tricky to do. Um, when you're, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. So Sarah, was, what does the support look like? Yeah. Or, that, or so, were you going to say something? No, well, I was just, I was reading, I'm on a big, um, <laughs> this, is, this is such a rabbit hole. So please tell me to shush. Um, but I'm on this really big kick right now about something that's called two gen as in two generation. Uh, and the, the research, out of the Ascend Network from the Aspen Institute shows that the most effective way to end generational poverty is simultaneous services to parent and kid that focus on education, economic well-being, health, and social capital. And I was reading something that they published yesterday that um, showed that the average cost of childcare is $1,800 a month. That just gave me chills. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, eighteen hundred dollars a month. I mean, that's over the course of a year. That's like a nice car that you just bought. Um, or maybe, just, or maybe a semester. <laughs> like, yes, or maybe, uh, maybe, yeah, that's a semester like a schmancy school. Well, it's like, yeah, a semester at a schmancy school, a year, yeah. you know, at a, a. Anyways, college is expensive, but I just it sort of blew my mind to think about it just feels like such a catch 22 where it's like, if you want to, if you're a working adult who makes 50 grand a year and you want to go back to school, but you have young kids, you have to spend money so that they're getting well taken care of while you choose not to spend your time with them as a parent, which is an extremely difficult choice to make. So you can go to school so you can have a better future for your family. So you can make more money and provide better support for them, et cetera, et cetera. But in the meanwhile, you're like digging yourself into a financial hole because childcare is so dang expensive. So it's like, is it even worth it 
if you have to spend that much money in order to try to make more money in what, six years? Like, oi. Anyway. Yeah, and to be able to hold those long-term benefits in the palm of your hand while you're trying to make that decision and also try to live within a, a moderate or potentially mm-hmm. stressed budget. Mm-hmm. Like that, it's really challenging. Being in that place has to feel like, well, do I stay in this frying pan that I'm burning up in uh-huh. or do I just jump right into the fire? Yep. Oh. yep. So Sarah, tell me about the support that Peloton U offers. Like, what does it even look like? Yeah. So when we designed Peloton, we spent a lot of time with students surfacing what they needed. And the two big things we heard were flexibility and support. And a lot of the existing solutions out there do one or the other really well, but are sort of necessary but insufficient to to really change a student's likelihood of graduating. So we've got three key pieces of our model. The first is we partner with really high-quality online university programs that use a very specific kind of pedagogy and curriculum called competency-based education. And I can tell you all kinds of nerdy things about it, but the basic idea is instead of college being organized around time in which learning must take place, competency-based education says learning must take place and it does not matter how much time it takes. So they focus on a student being able to demonstrate skill or competency in specific areas. They usually do real-world project-based learning to assess that. But if a student, for example, has been in communications for 20 years, they can take intro to communications and show mastery of that content in like four days. Whoa. Because why would they spend 16 weeks doing something that they've been doing for 20 years, right? Like they should be able to just show that they already know how to do that. So they can move on to managerial accounting where they need 20 weeks in order to truly master the content. And so it frees the learner to actually master the content without having to worry about either um, keeping up with a professor when they need to go more slowly or wasting their time and their money on stuff that they've already learned or are already have are able to learn very quickly. So this to me, so listeners in the past year have been introduced to Barb Oakley, who is a real life female Indiana Jones, but also kind of queen of the mooks. Yeah. Like in all the massive online learning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess how does this competency-based education compare to that? And I know I'm asking you a huge question and your jaw's probably dropping open and you're like, oh my God, who is this ignorant woman? No, not to But a I, valid I question. feel like that's a guess that I know listeners have met and, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of people responded to it and were kind of digging around and clicking and kind of telling yep. me like, oh my God, you can fill knowledge gaps that you come across with these mm-hmm. like classes that are specifically targeted to people who just want to like, they want to learn the skill. Yeah, They need to have it. They need to have it like yesterday, but they only need this skill. They don't need the other 47 skills that go with it. They just need this one right now. And it's, yeah. you're able to sort of laser point. How does this compare? Yeah, it's, they, um, 
I wish I could draw you a Venn diagram. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can, and we can post maybe it in the I show can. notes. <laughs> maybe I can. It'll be like on a piece of paper and a mecha- with a mechanical that works <laughs> and like food stains. Um, so MOOCs are powerful because of exactly what you've highlighted. They sort of unbundle skills that or content that people traditionally could only access by actually participating in you know, a full degree program or signing up for a traditional, maybe a community college sort of, you know, extended learning course. And MOOCs have taken that and put it online so you can access it anywhere at any point, which is spectacular. And so for people who, I I often think of um, sort of Swiss cheese, right? So for people who have some Swiss cheese holes that they want to fill with skills, MOOCs are an amazing way to to fill them, to learn the things that you want or to get exposure. Like I've taken a, uh, to your, to your point about your mother's accounting skills and T charts, I laughed because I'm like, I know what that is. And I am, I am not good at them yet. I was about to say, I'm so bad at them. I'm going to try I'm like, I'll have a growth mindset. I am not good at them yet, but I did a MOOC, an accounting MOOC edX from Wharton, I think. But here's both my lived experience and what the data bears out for MOOCs is that completion rates are pretty low. Um, I and, that, that. and and there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one is people are looking for a little bit of content. Um, there, a lot of them are free. And so some of the sort of skin in the game phenomenon that you might feel if you paid a hundred bucks for it or something like that just isn't present. It is challenging to go to school online. And this is actually going to sort of bring me to the supports that we blend with the competency-based education but where MOOCs are focused on sort of, you know, content and skills, they do still feel a little bit more like a traditional approach to learning. In a competency-based program, you're not even taking necessarily a class, right? You might be working on a goal that is about managing conflict in the workplace. And there might be six skills that you are learning that are related to that sort of overarching goal of being able to manage conflict in the workplace. You might be learning some things around conflict resolution techniques. You might be learning some things around um, HR policies. You might be learning some things around um, creating an effective PowerPoint, right? Like seemingly unrelated skills that have been grouped together to create this sort of larger learning objective for you. And you are going to show that you know how to do those through either a series of smaller projects or a really large sort of portfolio project that you're then evaluated on against a rubric and you are held to an A level standard or, you know, depending on which university you're going to, maybe a B level standard, but you're held to a high standard. And so you will get feedback that says either you have mastered every competency related to this project, to this goal, or you have not yet mastered it. And here are the things that you need to go back and address. And it's the feedback is, um, pointing you in the right direction, but not giving away the answers. And so it allows the learner to really focus on making sure that they know the skill fully without there sort of being this risk of failure. So I often use, um, when I'm explaining competency-based education, I often use the martial arts building system as an analogy. Not a martial arts person, but people have typically have enough exposure to be like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, get it, right? So if, if you want to test for your green belt, there are a set of moves that you need to be able to show that you can do in order to get your green belt. And you'll go to class and you'll practice. And when it's time for your green belt test, you'll go show up, 
you'll do everything that you know how to do. And if you know how to do all the moves correctly, you'll get your green belt. If you don't know how to do them, you don't get like 70% of a green belt. And you also don't get like <laughs> kicked out of the dojo, right? Like, right. Like you get to stay, but you get, you have to try again. You have to try again and you'll go back and you'll practice more and you'll go to classes. Maybe you'll get some one-on-one time with your instructor to get more personalized support. You'll get feedback around what you don't know how to do, right? You're like, okay, well, I know how to do these seven moves, but I don't know how to do this, these three, right? So those are the ones I'll focus on. And then when you're ready, you'll test again, right? Like, and that's actually how we learn in, in most areas um, of our life, except typically not in our education system. Um, and so in a competency-based degree program, they have essentially backwards planned the, the skills that you need if you are trying to work in that field or get hired by an employer with that particular degree. And they've sort of organized them and grouped them so that you can show your mastery, show your skills as you go through, and then you're earning college credit for them that then accrues to a degree. So it sort of takes some of the core principles of the MOOC where you can sort of fill in the skills that you need, but then still requires that you show that you know how to do the other pieces of the associate degree or the bachelor's degree skills. It's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but... But a really uh, helpful one. And I guess to help me understand it a little bit deeper... So say I'm a student and I go for my green belt and I'm 70% of the way there, but I'm, I'm missing some core competencies to get that green belt. When you're pointing me back mm-hmm. to what I need to do, is that read this book, do this skill? Like what are, what does that look like? Like how yeah. are people learning? Is it book learning? Is it experiential learning? Is it both? Is it something else? All of the above. So our student favorite university that we partner with is uh, the the competency-based program out of Southern New Hampshire University. And the competency-based program is called College for America. And they're a great example because they have this sort of very pure approach to competency-based education. And what they have done is for every goal that a student is going to attempt, right? Is you can kind of think of a goal being like a class, but it's much more focused on the sort of overarching skill or group of skills. For every goal that a student is going to attempt, they have curated resources that will equip the student to learn what they need to learn in order to master that goal. So it might be watching lectures. It might be reading digital textbooks. It might be... Um, interacting with some sort of, um, you know, interactive like learning game online. It might be reading case studies. It might be analyzing U.S. census data. It might be reading examples of other marketing briefs while they're learning how to create their own for the first time. So they use a lot of different types of resources. It might be like go out and interview three people about what they think the three branches of the government do, for example which is a real one. Um, <laughs> and so they, they really, they use a lot of different ways to help the student learn what they need to learn. But let's say that you, you only got 70% of your project mastered, right? And you get it back. The instructor isn't going to say, go read this textbook. They're going to say, you have not yet formatted your PowerPoint in a way that is easy for a viewer to follow along or whatever that's not quite right, but you kind of get the gist of it. Got it. And then they'll say, 
to better understand how to do this, you should go back to this resource or this resource and take a look again, paying particular attention to font choices or whatever. That's a little bit more direct than they would be. Stop using Comic Sans. Yeah, or Papyrus. (laughs) Oof, Lord help us. Uh, I'm pretty sure the signs in hell are all written in Papyrus. (laughs) Yeah, so does that make more sense? That makes so much more sense. Okay. That makes so much more sense. It's really focused on the outcome of your learning rather than the process of your learning. Right? So it's like, it's not about the amount of time or which resources or whatever. It's, I'm going to evaluate the thing you are giving me that says that you know how to do it to see if you know how to do it. It's like kind of similar, like if you were learning how to do a... Uh, you know, grand jeté in ballet. Like your ballet instructor is not going to be like, "Go read this book on ballet," <laughs> <laughs> right? They're going to be like, "Watch this other student do it, or watch this video, practice at home, and then come show me again." And pay attention to how you're landing, right, or something like that. I haven't done ballet since I was like eight, so that was kind of a bad example. But um, I feel you. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so the other pieces of our support, so the, the, I mentioned. I know, I was like, we have three three pieces and we've only covered one. Three key pieces. In in our defense, the competency-based education piece is the wonkiest. But to circle back to the MOOCs and competency-based education, I, I said something like, going to school online is difficult. And it is, right? Facebook is a click away. Mm -hmm. ESPN is a click away. YouTube is a click away. Like, Netflix, you can, you can distract yourself for hours. And online. I imagine if you're a working parent going to school, yeah. you're probably not getting this until you're exhausted after work when yep. that I'll ability to always. Yeah, you're gonna click away. It's so easy when you're yeah. half brain dead when you start. Yeah. Yes. And you put on top of that both MOOCs and a lot of competency based education don't have very strict schedules. And that is one of the things about them that is really valuable for students is that they are flexible, right? But then that also can lead to indefinite procrastination. And so what we have Yeah, 47-year associate degrees. Yes, yeah. Just one class at a time every six months or so. So what we identified in talking with students is that they really liked the flexibility of competency-based education. They liked the real-world learning. They liked the project-based pieces of it. It made, made them feel like their learning actually was that they were really applying their knowledge by having to create something and show that they knew it. But that they wanted sort of two other pieces of support. One of them is a place to come be a student. So we have physical study spaces that our students, when they join the program, are actually required to come to. And we definitely get a little bit of kicking and screaming about that until they realize what we all eventually realize, which is if we try to do this at home on the couch after a long day, it's probably not going to happen. So we have these physical study spaces that are sort of sacred places for our students to come just be students. There's no dust bunnies under the couch that can tempt them to procrastinating by cleaning. <laughs> Their kids are not in the next room. They're not worried about what that crashing sound was and if everybody's okay or not. Their um, partner isn't, you know, hovering around waiting for them to pay attention to them after a long day. They get to come just be a student. And in the study spaces, we also have other students. And we have some support staff who are able to sort of troubleshoot and problem solve 
so that rather than, again, being home alone, trying to get over a weird technical issue, you can literally turn and two feet away, there's somebody who has solved that problem already 17 other times who can help you get unstuck in 30 seconds, rather than you wasting an hour beating your head against your laptop because, you know, Adobe Flash Player isn't updating right or something. Yeah, I'm finishing up a fellowship right now. And at the beginning of the fellowship, I remember having a call with one of my fellows who was not, had no experience in using Google Docs. And to anyone starting to use Google Docs, it can be maddening at first. Like, I feel like I'm a pretty solid user. And there are still some days where I'm like, this is clunky af (laughs) Um, amen amen but like those kinds of things it's like can be such a detraction yes to the real learning right like here was my here was my fellow who has like some really creative ideas and is doing some interesting things and contributing to social good here in the hudson valley yet Mm -hmm. like the the barrier to getting the real good stuff done is like fighting with Frickin' Google Docs. <laughs> yeah. Which, and that, it's so, and that's actually a great segue to the next set of our support because we sort of think about our, our brains as plumbing a lot of the time. <laughs> right? So it's like, if you are. As someone work- who used to talk to women about poop, like, I really want to see where this goes. Oh, great. We're not going to go to a poop place, <laughs> but we can if you want to. Right? right? Or like, we can also use, you know, like the the internets and bandwidth and techie things. But let's just go with plumbing because that's where my brain is today. Right? It's so like, I think of it as plumbing where it's like, if you work 50 hours a week and you're a partner and you have kids, like you have a lot of stuff in the pipes and there is very little water probably getting through, right? Like you do not have a lot of room for more things to come through, and then if you don't know how to use Google Docs, like that can stop the whole thing up. Like that can be the last straw just simply because you are already, you have so much of your cognitive energy being taken up by other really important things. It's like, no, I don't, I don't have time to learn how to use Google Docs. This, is an in, this feels like an insurmountable barrier simply because I just don't have margin to, to, to do it on my own. Right. But if somebody can sit next to you and show you how to do it for 10 minutes, all of a sudden you have acquired the skill that you needed in a very easy way. And then it actually can end up hopefully creating more margin for you in that clogged pipe that I'm conjuring up right now. Um, And that's the third piece of our support is in-person coaching. So we and one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk with you um, is because we similarly have uncovered that you have really hardworking, successful people who have a bunch of sort of gunk in their brains that and went, shame. Oh, oh, we, oh, just you wait. You and I have a lot to talk about on the shame front. <laughs> <laughs> just you wait. Um, yeah. And so if we can one help people realize that they are not the only ones like that in and of itself is a, is a worthy task, but our approach to coaching is in a lot of ways different than how most people working in the sort of college persistence or college completion space approach it. They tend to go, okay, students need academic support. First, college is hard. That's true. Then they need logistical support. College is complicated. That's true. Then if we can get to it or if the relationship allows for it or if we really click, we can get to sort of emotional and psychological barriers. Like it, it, is, it is hard to go to school but like we got to take care of the academics and logistics first. 
at Peloton, we, we coach in the reverse order. So we say the, the biggest barriers and the ones that are most challenging to navigate and address are those gremlins and shame tapes and nasty little voices in all of our heads. We all have them about anything and everything. If we can help a student learn to ignore them or learn to heal them while they are re-enrolling in school, especially as an adult, I mean, just imagine trying to go back to college tomorrow if nothing else in your life changed, right? And like, if you had never earned a degree, I'm 34, right? Yeah, no, I'm 34. (laughs) I'm like, I would feel really out of place walking onto the University of Texas at Austin's campus. And I would be wondering if everybody thought something was wrong with me because I'm 34 earning a bachelor's degree for the first time, which is ridiculous because the system's broken and actually has nothing to do with me, et cetera, et cetera. But not ridiculous inside your own head if not challenged. Exactly. And so that is a big piece of what we tackle in our in-person support and in our coaching, right? Is how can we help our students navigate those emotional and psychological obstacles and barriers? And they can be internal and external, right? We have um, folks that are in abusive or unhealthy relationships. We have folks that are grieving because they've lost people that they love. We have folks that are navigating shame tapes in their head. We have folks that are returning to school for the first time in 30 years who had undiagnosed learning disabilities and differences that they are now as a 40 something year old dealing with for the first time. And that's sort of throwing them through a loop, right? Like, so we focus on that. And then we sort of jokingly refer to ourselves as like personal assistance for our students, right? Like their lives are so busy if we can help them with the logistic pieces and remind them when they need to fill out their federal financial aid application or to get this piece of paperwork in or to do you know this thing on this schedule because that's what's going to help them meet the goals they set for themselves, like that is a great gift that we can give them. And so those two focus areas, the emotional, psychological, and then the logistical in our coaching conversations actually create an enormous amount of margin in our students' brains so they then, in turn, can focus on the academics. And it turns out, humans are learners. <laughs> right? <laughs> we are literally wired to be learners. And so if we can get all that garbage out of their brain, they have so much hunger and appetite and ability to learn the things largely on their own. And when they need help or they're stuck, like we are, we are there and we do the academic support as well. But we have just been... Um, we're just so smitten with how much our students love learning and are able to do it completely on their own when we can work with them on those other barriers. Um, and it's really, really cool to watch happen. Holy shit, Sarah. This <laughs> is amazing. It excites me on two levels. I think one, going back to that, first generation college status that I am like I'm the first one in my family to go like right after high school and go full-time as a traditional college student and I think there's a shorthand or a lack of understanding of academia and the politics and how things worked Mm -hmm. going to a large institution like UMass that I I didn't know that I had an advisor until Mm -hmm. I think my senior year. 
And then even when I found out, I was like, well, like, I guess I'm only supposed to go to them, like, if my hair is on fire. Like, I don't need to bother them. I should just work hard. And I look back and it's like, it's funny. I actually did a sociology minor, right? Like, I took all the classes to have a sociology minor. But because I never even knew who the hell my advisor was, I don't actually have it on my degree because I didn't know you had to file special paperwork for that. Yep. Yep. Right? Like, and I'm like a pretty smart woman. I think I'm probably like maybe a smidge smarter than the average bear. Yeah. And so so. it was wild to (laughs) me. So I think it excites me hearing that the students that you're working with have that kind of robust support. And then Mm -hmm. for the obvious reasons, as someone coming off a nine-year career of coaching women privately and seeing Mm -hmm. what that can do Mm -hmm. and how just having space, you know, even just a couple hours a month and unpacking that with someone who's totally unbiased, except for they want you to succeed at what you're doing. Yeah. And having that is like super profound. Like it has got to be amazing to see people's trajectories change. It, it truly is. And it's, I think one of the things that's so special about it is that it's, um, it, it's it, like, it, what, what are the words? This is a long way around, but are, do you know who Beth Moore is by any no. chance? Tell me who Beth Moore is. So she is this um, very famous, very beloved, conservative Christian woman, speaker and writer. And she caught hell last year um, for speaking out against some sexism that she had experienced in the industry. And it was sort of related to the Me Too movement, but in the way that conservative Southern Christians might relate to the Me Too movement. Um, and I am a Southern Christian, I guess, which is weird to say out loud. Oh, God. I was an atheist until I was like 26. And so I still just have some identity things I'm still working through there. Anyways, the whole point of the story is Beth Moore is this Southern conservative Christian woman. She is for the first time pushing back against the sort of traditional gender expectations within the culture that she operates. And there's this fantastic article and I'll see if I can hunt it down for you. Oh, please. Where a reporter interviews her husband Right. And again, we're talking, you know, all all the stereotypes that you can sort of imagine about what a Southern Baptist Christian marriage might might supposed to look like. Right. So they're sort of interviewing the husband. It seems like maybe trying to dig at like, well, but do you resent how famous your wife is? And his comment is, no, my job is to block for OJ. Right. It's like an old school football reference to OJ Simpson. Right. It's like he is so clear that Beth is the star and that she has a calling and things that she is supposed to be doing and saying and encouraging and serving others. And his job is to make sure she can do that, right? It's to do all the things that maybe aren't the very stereotypical old fashioned quote unquote male things to do in a household. But he's like, no, my, my job is to block for OJ. My job is to make sure that Beth can be everything that she is supposed to be. And I find myself sort of echoing that phrase in my head often with our students from like, our job is just to get stuff out of their way 
whether it's systemic or, or personal or getting them access to a, a, an actual trained counselor because none of us are actually licensed counselors, right? Like, or um, helping them get a, a better car loan rate or whatever. Like our job is to just get stuff out of their way so that they can learn and, and get the piece of paper that proves to their boss that they really are deserving of that promotion or breaking through that glass ceiling or that shows them that they are smart. Maybe it's something that they've doubted their whole lives, right? And like, ultimately, like, yes, we're helping people get college degrees. And yes, we hope that that leads to sort of, you know, all of the changes in their life from a sort of tangible economic career perspective that they might hope for. But what we like, what we watch happen time and time again is that our students feel hope for the first time in a long time and they feel like they belong somewhere. And that, like, that's worth its weight in gold. I'm like, if, if you never finish with us, but one of the things that we can help you believe is you are capable of doing this and you have a place where you are, like, truly loved and cared for, whether you've been ghosting us for a month and a half or bought, brought us cookies, like, that is that is a, a joy and a pleasure and something, like, our entire staff just feels really lucky that we get to do. And to be able to see people as humans, right? Like, yeah. I don't know, are you a... Are you a strength finder geek like I am? Have you done I, that one? I have done it. I am. Uh, I have other things I am more diehard about than strength finders, but I'm familiar. I'm, I'm decently well versed. <laughs> okay, so one of mine is individualistic. So being uh-huh. able to see that everyone, every situation, and every person is an individual and unique one. Yes. And then one of my other skills is connectedness. So then uh-huh. also seeing like we have all these unique people in unique situations, but there are common connections and things. Yes. So I'm hearing about what you're doing and I'm just like, what a fascinating job you have. Like you are able to see people like mm-hmm. good or bad. You're able to see everything that they have going on and then it sounds like almost like being a concierge, like really being able to sit down with each person and say, okay, you've got this going on, that going on. And you might find out it's nothing to do with academics that the issue it's, they need a new car. (laughs) Right. Like they need, they need help with a car loan. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And it's, I mean, to your point around the individualistic strength finder, like that's actually a mindset that I hire for, in every position on the team, right? Like whether you're a coach or a recruiter, like you, you have to believe that, that every single person has strengths and assets. It is unique, right? And that our privilege is to help connect them to the things that they need in order to sort of be their full selves and to truly thrive. We have truly baked into our DNA and our values this belief that we will do what is best for the person before we do what's best for us as an organization. So we've had students who are in our program who have experienced really difficult things who are going to need, who need to take a break from school. And we are worried that they might never return, but it is absolutely what is best for them that they take five or six months off while they heal from sexual assault or while they grieve the loss of a parent. And that, is bad for our numbers, but it's good for them, right? And so it's like, we have to do what is right for this person, period. Like, just hard stop. Well, it's bad for your short-term numbers. 
Sure. But I guess this is where the the CPA and the analytical part of me kicks in. And it's like, but what is it going to do for your numbers long term? Yeah. And like, it's good for the karmic balance. (laughs) Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. So I am in such awe of how intensely you're supporting the students that you're working with. But I have a question that comes from the place of one, having been a coach, mm-hmm. and two, also have been early on a coach of coaches. It's easy to burn out when you're mm-hmm. given so much. And I know you mentioned burnout was also partly what got you to Peloton you in the first yeah. place. Do we need to talk about burnout? Oh, no. No, I mean, burnout. Who does that? Gosh. (laughs) Never even heard of it. Lots of successful women. That's who. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I am being extremely sarcastic. (laughs) Um, My, it's, you know, it's so funny. I'm about to come up on essentially my five year burnout anniversary from Kip. (laughs) And it it is. Burnout anniversary. Yeah. Technically, it was like. January 2nd, give or take, that was when I showed up at my brand new counselor's office for a two hour emergency session because I was experiencing suicidal ideation after spending three hours in professional development at my old employer. Uh, That was our second meeting. She was like, cool, we're just going to dive on in, keep you safe. I was like, yeah, let's do that. That sounds like a good idea. But that was sort of my like uh, initial rock bottom. And then the last it has been a five year journey of healing coming out of that. And I have just started to feel like myself, which is both frustrating and incredibly bright and beautiful. Um, I'm happy you're coming back. Thanks. Me too. It's pretty nice. Cause sometimes it doesn't feel possible. No, you know, it's so fascinating, right? So basically the summer before I started my first year as principal, I bulged my first disc in my lower back. And my, it's my very last one, right at my tailbone. And then in October, I was sitting next to my boss in a leadership meeting. And my whole right leg went completely numb. And it turns out I had bulged a second one. And both of those were from stress, right? So I was, at that point in my life, so on the one hand, like urgently and powerfully motivated to work hard on behalf of my students and my staff, but did not know how to actually manage all of the emotional burdens that came with that. And just the stress of being a principal of a Mm -hmm. high performing charter school and 40 something staff and way too many freshmen (laughs) that year. Um, And like taking over from a founding principal who's incredibly charismatic, right? Like there were all of these things and I just didn't have the tools in my tool belt to, to manage that, that well. Um, and it's sort of, it's funny. My dad and I, uh, joke a lot about how we have both developed workaholic tendencies as the, as our primary coping mechanism for the fact that neither one of us likes to deal with our shit. (laughs) That was my coping mechanism for a long time until I burnt out. So I know that one really well because it also pays dividends, right? Like not only do you not have to tend to your own shit, but at the same time, it usually, at least for me, working in finance in New York was incredibly lucrative. Yeah. Like 
working for a big three consulting firm, they love the workaholics. They want, they want, they don't want you to go to Workaholics Anonymous. No. I mean, Texas public schools, probably a little less lucrative, but you know, maybe I should have tried (laughs) consulting after college instead of Teach America after all. I mean, I probably would have ended up being a workaholic no matter what. But yeah, I'm like kind of giggling a little bit about those aligned incentives there. Yeah. So I, so I bulged those two discs in my lower back. Right. And so I was in chronic pain for the first time in my life. And it just, it did such a number on my mental health. And I mean, I was having panic attacks every single morning driving to school. There was this one bend in the turn on, on nine, six, nine, that I would come around it and see the light that I was going to have to turn right at to get into my school's campus. And it was, I mean, it was clockwork. I would like pull and over by the body was like whole body. Bless her. My, we had a, um, a, our founding social worker who worked at the high school at the time, this woman, Katie Parker, she's a saint. She on multiple occasions had to come like sit with me in my car. Like, I know I'm your boss and I'm supposed to be this like, you know, has our act together principal who's going to lead us all to a perfectly equitable school where all students are learning. But like, can you just help me breathe, please? <laughs> we just got to start with that today. Um, and she like never once made me feel any kind of shame about it. She actually was my, my original gateway to uh, Brene Brown's research, which has been invaluable for me and for a lot of people in my life. But I thought at KIPP that I'd be able to sort of work through it and, uh, sort of realized over the course of the first semester that wasn't the case and had decided that I was going to step down at the end of the year. Um, so I was going to do a, an entire year as principal and then return to a position that I enjoyed better because that was also when I learned that I could be good at something and hate it, <laughs> which I didn't I know. also share that lesson with you. Like, yeah. I totally get it. It's an important one, as it turns out. Yeah, because like you get reward, like you get rewarded, and and you you're doing the professional work. And I know for me, like at PwC, like checking the boxes, getting the promotions, checking yeah. that next round of boxes, and earning some spot bonuses. Yeah, but like that deep sense of knowing where, like uh-huh. for me, it was putting on the suit and having to walk yeah. across the Lower East Side to the subway and I'm like I feel like I'm playing the part of a professional woman in New York in finance like every day I felt like I was like method acting my way through the day and like having to psych myself up to get there and probably I was having panic attacks more at night because I would wake Mm. up and have an unfinished thought like did I send that file did I do that thing or you know is is someone going to go completely ape shit on me the next day? Yeah. And it's it's terrible to feel like you're so good at something, but it's so not going like you hoped. <laughs> I know. Or it feels yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah, and it was I I I didn't know that I had internalized a belief that if you were good at something, you were supposed to like it. Right. And so then I felt, and then I felt all kind of shame because I hated it. I hated it. I mean, it made me, I was grateful for the chance to be able to do that work. And I was glad that I was not bad at it, but I was miserable. And it was like, what's wrong with me that I hate this so much? Like, this is important work. I'm good at it. 
I'm so young. They invested all this like time and energy in me. Like, you know, all of my students are depending on me. Families are depending on me, like all this stuff. And then would just sort of like spiral into this little like shame pit that would just be like, I feel shame about feeling shame about feeling shame about feeling shame. Like just over and over and over again. It was like, I don't, I mean, just ridiculous. And so I went back for the second semester of the year and had this just complete and utter nervous breakdown the second day of the semester and showed up my therapist's office on literally the second time I'd ever met her. And when I had to go on medical leave, I didn't work for four months and which is the first time basically since I was, well, technically out of college, but I mean, I've been working since I was 13. I was like, I wasn't allowed to work. I was like, I don't know who I did. I was like, I, I repeatedly thought, I do not know who I am if I am not working and if I'm not working very specifically for these students in this kind of a way. Like it was a, it ended up being a complete and utter identity crisis for me. O-M-G. <laughs> so, okay. So here's what I'm imagining. You are a, we're going to say workaholic right? Yeah. Like you've, you've thrown it into the mix. You're Thumbs this workaholic. Up. You have now gotten to the point where discs are bulging up your back mm-hmm. and you have now recognized that your health is going to be deteriorating even more. And when I say health, I also mean like emotional yes. health, social yeah. health. So you are now at this precipice of like looking back and you're like, I made it to exactly where I said I was going to go. Uh I made it here. I Uh hate it. And I hate it so bad that literally the wheels are falling off the car that I'm driving around. Yeah. I mean, I, when I share this part of my story with people, I often will say like the work would have killed me. And I, I don't mean metaphorically. It, that is that is the path that I was walking down was one that ultimately was going to lead to my either like active or passive death because it was I had no ability at the time and and I sort of was like just starting my relationship with my therapist who is God's gift to mankind um, she's so wonderful um, right but like I just had no margin no room in my pipes my plumbing so to speak. <laughs> Um, to like deal with any of the things that were going on and the I mean I would like think about you know like well if my if my car ran off the overpass like that wouldn't be so bad and then would sort of be like holy shit Sarah yes it fucking would that is not a healthy normal thought to think but was like that is what it had come to and was I you know it was sort of a like oh I can't keep ignoring my needs. And then that brought up all sorts of things around feeling shame about being selfish. Right. Which is like a whole other, you know, right. Like who am I to actually like my work? Yeah. And like, what's so wrong with you that you can't just deal with this stress? Like, what do you mean you need to take four months off from work in order to feel better? Like, come on, Sarah, just suck it up. Just like, "Mm, no, I don't, I don't think I can let that voice win anymore. I don't know. I think the, I don't know what voice is going to win right now, but like that one's, I got to learn how to get that one to be quiet. And I'm, I'm going to go back to this cause you, you've mentioned it a couple times now, like the suicidal ideation. 
Mm-hmm. When I hear that, I have been there personally, so I know exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about, where you just have these like really passive fantasies of like, I could just fall down these stairs right now, and then I mm-hmm. wouldn't have to deal with any of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And then all the pain would stop. Yeah, all the pain yeah. would stop. I also know when you get to that place, it's really hard to see clearly. Yes. Obviously, you had a therapist helping you along, but what else do you think really contributed to you getting back to the thriving Sarah that I'm talking to? Yeah, man. It's I said earlier, you know, I, I feel like myself for the first time in a long time. And it's interesting because I have in the past five years begun to see clearly that there were a lot of things going on and a lot of um, complex trauma influencing the way that my body and my brain were responding to things in my life that I didn't know about before. And so when I say I sort of feel like myself again, there's a part of me that's like, actually, I don't feel like myself again. I feel like my true self because the self that I was before, even before the bulging discs, I mean, that was me, certainly, but there were a lot of things sort of obfuscating my view of myself that I really needed to deal with and face that I, I was ignoring, right? That's, that is a large part of where that workaholism came from. And then in these past five years, unfortunately, what I hoped would have been the bottom point, uh, which was leaving Kip and having that sort of mental breakdown was actually the start of a pretty intense, continuous downward spiral that involved realizing a lot of the things about um, my background and some trauma that I'd experienced, and then also involved being sexually assaulted by one of my closest male friends in the middle of this past five-year period, and then sort of dealing with all of that until I hit actual rock bottom in the fall of 2017, right? And so it it ended up being nearly a three-year downward spiral until just the last year. So when you're like, so what helped you see clearly? I'm like, well, uh, it was pretty muddy for a while there. There were all, you know, blindfolds, mud, smeary goggles, shadows. Yeah, like it, it wasn't it wasn't clear. And what I thought was the bottom was was not at all, right? It's like it was the ocean floor next to a really big trench that I still had to go down into. And so I, I think some things that have been really useful for me in continuing to swim through that mud and then in truly being able to see more clearly in the last year, I mean, for sure is, is a therapist that I know is on my side and cares about me. Not that you would, well, hopefully you're not going to a therapist, but that's not the case, but um, who really understood the complexities of the trauma that I was experiencing and the way that my brain processes things, which has been such a gift. For me, my faith, is a big part of it. Well, someone might hear that and think like, oh, that's the really pat, like, you just believe God's working all things for good. I'm like, no, it was a shit show. And most days I wake up and I'm like, God's not real. But there were these sort of moments, these like little gifts and little glimmers over the course of the last five years, like kindness I didn't deserve, insights that I never thought what I would accomplish, the ability to pay for counseling when money was really, really tight and I didn't have health insurance, like, there have been all of these sort of small kindnesses that for me have been able to keep a faith in 
God and light and hope, like however you want to sort of understand that, mm-hmm. that it, that it's there, right. That it's like that we may be in a particularly shitty, dark, deep place. Um, but there was enough light getting through here and there to sort of, um, remind me periodically that all was not lost. I started traveling again, which is something that, um, is a huge fill for me and sort of grounds me in a way that just being in my normal everyday life doesn't do. And then I, I have such incredible friends. Um, I'm not married. I don't have any kids. And there's a community of friends here in Austin who have been, you know, the, the encouragement and the comforters and the, um, like joke tellers, uh, and the like, Hey, are you sure you're okay to be alone right now? And the like, maybe stop drinking, Sarah. (laughs) That was a phase I went through. Um, or like put down the whole pizza and maybe come for a walk. Um, (laughs) like I've just been like, step away from the pizza. pizza. Um, but like in a non judgy way, right. In a way that really has felt kind and empathetic. Um, they've been so open and vulnerable with me and, um, it's like really accepting and, and kind with my own sort of rawness and tenderness. And I've been sort of learning to, to deal with myself and have healthy boundaries, both from the outside in, but also healthy containment boundaries, right? Where it's like, no, you don't, you don't need to see everything that comes to your mind. Or like, no, that anger is, <laughs> that anger is misdirected at that person. And what's actually happening is you're reliving some trauma right now that has nothing to do with what your friend just told you while you're sitting in a bar having a beer. Uh, so maybe don't yell at her, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> those are things that I've had to learn and like have made a lot of missteps on that. My friends are just so incredibly like gracious and kind. And if they were here, they'd be like, you're being too hard on yourself. And then I would roll my eyes at them and be like, I know, um, <laughs> which is exactly the point, right? Like they're, they've just been, they're great. So that's what, yeah, those are the things that are coming to mind. Sarah first. Thank you for sharing this with us. My pleasure. With me, with the listeners. I feel like it's so easy to listen to podcasts where women come on and they talk about a situation when they're able to put a big bow around it. Oh, no. So I want to thank you for sharing what rock bottom looked like for you and kind of what you've been doing and your honesty around like you were just starting to feel Mm -hmm. like yourself again. Because I think... This is so important for us to be talking about. Mm -hmm. Also, because you and I share a friend in the amazing Kelly Lingard, Uh when I heard about you through her, she didn't give me a lot of info. She kind of let me do my my benevolent stalking and kind of coming up with things. But the last time I saw her, she did drop me this breadcrumb that I should ask you more about your travel and then just kind of <laughs> left it at that with a smile and a knowing look. And I will tell you any conversation that I have had with Kelly and a morsel has been dropped like that. It has never been <laughs> wrong. I, I trust her judgment fully and because she's such an amazing woman. 
She is. She's also such a little mischievous elf. I love I it. I know, right? That, that you know, you know the twinkle that I'm talking oh, about. Oh, I do. I totally do. <laughs> and a little smile. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, she's the best. So, what is this breadcrumb that she dropped me about travel? Yeah. I, I well, I love to travel, um, but I particularly love to travel by myself. Oh, tell me more. Yeah, it's partly because I'm this odd blend of loving plans and structure and revering spontaneity. Uh, so in Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP. and I'm a, I'm a I knew I liked you. I mean, the rest <laughs> of the types are cool too, but whatever. Um, I was, never mind. I'm about to make like an INTJ dating joke and ask you what your husband's or your partner's Myers Briggs is, but I'm going to keep us on track here. Uh, <laughs> I've like dated a series of INTJs and it's like a thing in Myers Briggs world that INTJs and ENFPs somehow end up working well together, which is sort of ridiculous to me because I'm like, surely we are the most annoying to an INTJ, but apparently not. <laughs> so I'm an, as I'm an ENFP, but at work, I am a pretty hard J, right? Like I like structures and systems insofar as it allows like creativity and flourishing. And so when I travel, it's, I love having enough of a plan to know sort of what my parameters are. Um, there was a time in my life where I really wanted to be a lawyer. And so I often, and my favorite section of the LSAT was the logic game section, which is the like, if Bobby can sit next to Sue, but Sue can only sit next to you people whose names end in H and the number 20, you know, just the like, then <laughs> what's the answer to seven? <laughs> like whatever that question is. So I love when I'm traveling, like, okay, if this site that I want to see is closed on Monday. And so everybody else is going to go here. Like, I should do whatever. But then I also love to just get in a car and drive, um, or have like a really loose plan. My last trip was a 10 day solo road trip across Ireland in October very cool. It was, yes, it was. It was so fun. Um, but it was, and I've experienced this sort of repeatedly when I travel, like such a grounding experience for me because I have to be with myself. And that's been one of the things that I've needed to learn the last few years is how to be alone with myself and stop being scared of the dark corners of my heart and like pay attention to how I really feel about things and name it. And like, it's okay if you're moody, like something doesn't have to happen. It's okay. If you just woke up in a bad mood, that's, that's actually all right. Um, it's okay to sleep in even while you're on vacation in a foreign country that you really want to go see things. Like it's okay to just sit in a bar and read a book. (laughs) Um, it's okay to spend three hours sitting in the back of this cathedral because it's stirring something in you for some reason. Um, and so I get these like really sort of like connected, transcendent, grounded moments when I'm traveling by myself. But then I also experience like hospitality from strangers in a different way than when I'm traveling with a friend, with a guy or a girlfriend. Yes. Because there's something about, I, I don't know if, I don't know if it's me or if it's them or if it's both, but like, because I'm traveling alone, one, I think people just like take pity on me. 
<laughs> and then I she, definitely agree that, that yeah. that's a thing on it's solo totally trips that I've done. Especially I'm four foot eleven, so I look pretty like ridiculously small and helpless uh-huh. if I'm lost. Like this poor girl, is she okay? Like, no, this is a choice, <laughs> everything is fine. Um and then there's also I don't know if you've experienced this too, but there's sort of like in- intrigue and curiosity. Like why would this woman be traveling by herself in the first place? which is always kind of fun. Like people will tell me, like, especially this last trip in Ireland is, is sort of fresh in my mind, but people are like, Oh, you're traveling by yourself. Like that's so brave. I'm like, I mean, it is, but not for the reasons you think it's the, like being alone with myself for 10 days is hard. <laughs> not like I'm you're worried. Like, it's about not the driving across Ireland. Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, those sheep are pretty ruthless, man. <laughs> Watch yourself. Those country roads. But then because I'm traveling by myself, I'm also paying more attention, right? So I'm so much more likely to jump in a conversation, you know, sitting in a coffee shop or on a plane or next to somebody in the subway and just like be open to invitations that if I'm with someone, I'm either not paying attention because I'm talking to the person I'm with, I'm traveling with, or I'm, I'm sort of, um, maybe more cautious than I need to be. And for whatever reason, when I'm by myself, I'm just more willing to take risks, hopefully smart ones, right? But like take more risks, push myself outside my comfort zone, accept an invitation to a party at the pub next door or to go, uh, you know, join a hike that's going to happen the next day with a bunch of folks in town or, you know, whatever it is. Another thing that I've noticed, I speak um, Spanish and French, ish uh and i i I speak french ish as well uh, yep i can say like seven things i used to be fluent and then i learned spanish and forgot it all and so i can say like eight things in french one of which is i used to be fluent but then i learned how to speak or whatever you know like phrase i've come up with i learned how Uh to start with just open with pardon me Uh i'm sorry Uh my french Uh is horrible yeah (laughs) and then usually they people would joke like Apparently, effroyable, which is, like, horrible, is, like, not a common adjective. It's very descriptive <laughs> and kind of got, like, probably more Baroque French meaning than I than I uh-huh. actually know. So yep. the fact that I use this, like, I- incredibly, like, insightful like, word to describe formal. it, they're just like, what? <laughs> Weirdo. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it's, like, the equivalent of, like, top of the morning to you or whatever. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and, and so that's the other thing I've noticed is that when I'm traveling by myself, I am so much more likely to sound like to, t- to be, uh, crappy at things. Right. I'm like, if I'm, Ooh, so my, my, yeah. my business partner, my co-founder and I both are decent at Spanish. And if he and I are traveling together and we come across somebody who would prefer to communicate in Spanish, I will let him do the talking and not do it. And I'm super comfortable with him. Like, I don't know why. I suddenly care about how my Spanish sounds to him, right? Which is whatever. I don't know. I'll figure that out in counseling eventually. But if I'm by myself, I do not give two shits about how bad my Spanish or my French is. I'm like, I'm all in. I will give it a try. I'll try Portuguese. I went to Sao Paulo a few years ago, and I was saying thank you as a man for like the first <laughs> days I was there. I didn't know that thank you was gendered, right? I didn't know that you changed the ending. And finally, this waiter was like... Obrigada. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? He's like, you, and he explained in English, like, you have to make it feminine because you're a girl. I was like, oh, 
cool. You're like, <laughs> awesome. I've been walking around. Everyone thinks I got a penis tucked in yep. here. <laughs> no, like, so be it, man. I hope I gave some people in Sao Paulo a thrill. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. And how did you realize that solo travel was going to be so helpful for your healing? Did you just stumble into it? Did I think I sort of did. It was one of those, I don't know if this resonates at all, but there, I, I have some beliefs about myself that may or may not have any evidence, right? So like, <laughs> for example, I think of myself as being sort of a nomadic gypsy type. I have lived in Austin for 10 years. Before that, I lived in Brownsville for two. Before that, I was in college in the same place for four. And before that, I lived with my parents. Right? Like, I have zero evidence that I am actually sort of a nomadic gypsy type, but I just sort of identify that way. And so I have sort of always felt like I was a solo traveler. And I've done a lot, especially when I was in, I got a chance to travel a good bit internationally when I was a teenager. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's where this came from. That's interesting. I hadn't realized that before. So when I was, sorry, let me actually finish that thought. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for the free counseling. Um, You're welcome. So in in high school, I got to travel a good bit internationally, which was just an an incredible privilege. And so I spent um, eight weeks in France on a language immersion program, but I spent a good bit of time sort of by myself, sort of traipsing around. It was a pretty, um, they were a pretty uh, independent group, um, which was really special. And then the next summer, I actually lived in the bush in South Africa for a month and got trained as this, this is so random, got trained as a certified walking safari guide. But like, oh in both, yeah, it was so fun. I shouldn't do it now, but there was a time where I could have taken you safely, like through the wilds of South Africa and like told you all about the trees and the birds and the, you know, prints on the ground. We could have like stopped cheating together. It would have been awesome. <laughs> but if we did, if we did it now, probably we would all die. Um, but I did a lot of those trips involved me sort of like traveling by myself or being by myself for good periods of time. And I loved them. And I backpacked around Eastern Europe by myself when I was in college. So I think I do have evidence for this. This is nice. This is a, this is a view of myself. Yeah, I was that. like, Wait a minute. This actually yeah, does seem like a lot I of do. evidence because that's a lot more travel than I did in high school and college. Yeah. So, and I and I loved it then. And so, I, as I was trying to sort of uncover after nervous breakdown in the middle of this muddy, dark, deep pit that just kept getting sort of worse and deeper and darker, like there was a there was a lot. And again, this has to do with some of the the trauma from my past. But there was a lot of like how much of my personality has evolved as a coping mechanism and how much of this is who I really am. And when I thought back to times before when I was younger, where I sort of felt my truest self, those trips often came to mind. And so I think sort of subconsciously as I've been sort of returning to myself in the last few years, revisiting those kinds of experiences, even some of those places I got to go back to Cape Town a few years ago, which is, I think, just one of the most special places in, in the world. It's just been a really beautiful way to sort of reconnect with an older part of myself, but in this sort of new season of awareness and clarity around um, all of the pieces of the crazy quilt that make up who I am. Got it. And it's, 
it's so fascinating to hear, especially like you got to this point where it almost sounded like you broke your identity, right? Uh-huh. Like it literally, it, I picture it sort of shattering like glass yeah. in front of you. Like, okay, everything I've been working full steam ahead towards does not fit, right? Yeah. And broke. Yeah. And now you're picking up all of these pieces and kind of like older bits and sort of putting the puzzle together, right? Like, uh-huh. oh, here's another piece of my identity. Here's another yeah. piece of it over here. Yeah. Does this fit? Like, I I don't know if you've ever read the, the kids, the little kids book. It's like, are you my mommy? Like, I'll like look at the people. Oh, like, yeah. Are you the real Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. Okay, we're gonna get we're gonna get rid of you and keep you. Great. <laughs> and I have been there, right? Uh-huh. Like I'm I'm laughing with you and not at yeah. you in this conversation because I oh, I understand what that's like. There. And honestly, it it happens periodically, like not in such a a, a painful way. But yes. I mean, I notice now in my early forties, like oh yeah, like I feel even like sometimes right now, like I'm in a little bit of a what is my identity right now? Yep. Like I thought yep. it was fully this and it's not, it, mm-hmm. that's, that's not fitting. It's chafing in, in, in some places. Uh-huh. Maybe, maybe that's not the truest thing. And we have to go back and we have to look at ourselves and go, is that the real Sarah? Am I the yep. real Kara? How does that fit? Yep. And I don't yep. know about you, but it sounds like we're similar probably in that we kind of have to do it and experience it to figure it yeah. out. Yeah. And it's, I think one of the things that I've, seen in the last year and I'm looking forward to about the years to come is that it's not so terrifying anymore, right? When it first happened, it was this just like, I mean, petrifying, paralyzing experience. Like I broke my whole life. Yeah. And like, I'll never be whole again. And everything is the worst. And who's ever going to love me? And you know, just insert whatever ridiculous. All the questions. Yeah. I'm going to like end up a heroin addict dead in the gutter. Like that was certainly where I might, where I was going to go. Um, and now it just feels necessary and like not normal. It definitely still is. It's agitating, but that I've got this sort of like, I don't know if this resonates for you, but I've got this sort of like, no, we broke the whole thing. Like I've got a strong center now. Here's what it is. I was just talking about this with my so my best guy from, from college. I just got to visit with earlier this week. And years ago, he brought up an analogy from ballroom dancing. And he said, the best ballroom dancers are so exquisite because they know how to give everything away in their frame, their posture, their movement, their energy. They know how to give everything away but their core. And I remember thinking in the moment, and this was even pre-breakdown, I remember thinking in the moment, I have no idea what my core is. And that is not the case anymore. I know my core. And so if somebody steps on my toes or I step on someone else's toes or some piece of me doesn't feel like it fits anymore or my elbow's broken or whatever, like it doesn't shake me in the way that it did when I, ha- when I sort of had to first let everything break to get here. But I'm like, no, I've got a core now. And that is uh, hard fought. Um, yeah. But they don't come like, easy or cheap. They do not come easy or cheap. They really don't. A lot of tattoos, a lot of counseling bills, uh, <laughs> a lot of acupuncture. Um, <laughs> right? But, like, it, it has brought me sort of a peace and an anchor, an anchoredness now that when those pieces start to chafe, you know, it's like, 
ah, yes, I've been down this road before. I know how to deal with this ish. Right. Like maybe the trees have changed a little bit, but cool. I can figure this out, I think. And as you pick (laughs) up the new pieces, it's easy to filter that against does this fit with the core of who I am? Yes. And, you know, there are the some pieces that you try on and you wear them a little bit longer. And yeah, no, no, definitely still rubs in the in the in a funny place. And then there are other pieces that you're like, yeah, yeah, this just snaps right in. Good. Uh We're good. uh Like that piece of that identity can stay. Yep. Yeah, and like it, it doesn't mean the core is immutable, right? Like it's still a, a place that gets refined and you know sanded down and reshaped a little bit here and there and all that. But you know, I had a friend recently tell me, "Are you into the Enneagram at all?" I know a little bit about it. Okay. Like I've taken it and I've kind of, but I, I haven't spent a lot of time with it. Well, that's a whole two-hour conversation that we can have some other time. <laughs> easy peasy. Yeah, so, I'll, so I'll, I'll stick to not Enneagram language. And so my, my friend and I have, I'm just from different personalities, and she shared a, a, a totally innocent remark where she said, um, you know, it's really hard for me to know sort of which, um, like what vibe I'm going to get from you because sometimes you're really structured and you really care a lot about time, and other times you're like super open and easy to schedule with, right? We were trying to find a time to hang out. And I remember the moment being like offended, <laughs> Right. So I was like, oh, like those are two things that can't coexist. Like you were either structured about time and consistent about it, or you were open and flexible about time and consistent about it. Like you can't be both. And then sort of later I was like, no, that's just kind of how I am. And that's okay. Yep. Yeah. I'm cool with that. Like that's probably frustrating as a friend and I'll see what I can do to make that a little bit easier for her. But like it didn't, this sort of like imperfect piece of me like didn't send me spiraling into like, Oh, I have to change it or I have to act differently for her comfort or her ease. Or like, I feel ashamed that I don't have this perfectly congruous part of my personality. It was just sort of like, Oh, I see that I'm responding to this in a certain way. And like, duly noted, I think this might just be how I am. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. All right, cool. Like, and just sort of like moved on, which is so it's like such a small thing, but it stuck with me is like, Something that three years ago I would have like stopped talking to her because I was upset about it or ashamed about it or like been defensive or never talked about it, but just completely changed my behavior to meet her needs and ignored my own. And it was like, oh, I think I can navigate this a little bit more healthily now. This is cool. Yeah. Or maybe I'm totally inconsistent with my schedule and how I handle it, but yep. I can communicate that better. Right. Like, yes. There's exactly. some other workaround that's like, not an imposition for you like it's not like yeah. you being a doormat and just like oh well let me let me change my whole style to meet you yeah it's just like all right let me let me just find a bridge here we can yeah. we can build one and it's not a character assassination like she's not telling me I'm a worthless piece of shit she is just expressing <laughs> like, that it can sometimes be difficult to schedule with me which is completely true <laughs> right <laughs> you're like fact yeah that's, is. that is that is an objective truth right there <laughs> Oh, Sarah, you have shared so much. I feel like we zoomed all over. Yes. What do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know or to come away from this conversation with? I would imagine that if they are listening to you as they should be, that they have a hunch that maybe what they're experiencing is not unique, right? That there are in fact other women 
or men out there like them. And so I think I just want to reiterate that that's super true. <laughs> like there are so many of us out there who are extremely high performing and capable and hardworking and smart and kind and all of these things who are complete messes and breaking down on the inside that like we are stronger when we are able to remember that we're not alone when we're able to sort of combat that shame by moving towards each other. Um, and that one of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves and each other is being open about what's really going on, right? Like that is an antidote to shame for ourselves, but it is also the way that we help women in our lives and women coming up behind us know that they aren't alone, that they can do it and that the challenges they're experiencing are completely normal, right? Like how infuriating it is to think that it's just you and then find out like 50 years later, maybe that in fact, there were lots of other people experiencing the same thing. Like we can save each other such heartache by being more open and candid with each other today. Oh, so that's what I would say. Sarah, I can't thank you enough. And I feel like it almost seems like it's planted because what you're talking about is the central reason that I started this podcast in the first place. It wasn't out of boredom and that I just felt like, you know, rummaging through people's like emotional drawers and asking him about what the worst burnout was in their life. It's really because I was so frustrated that the women I was serving one-on-one, like I, I, I couldn't get them to understand just through me mm-hmm. and just anonymously saying like, I do know other women that are dealing with this, but I can't mm-hmm. tell you the specifics of their life because they have entrusted me with that. Yeah. Like it is so important. And I, I feel like if we talk about this stuff, it matters. It does. And I can't predict all the ways that someone listening this conversation is going to change things, but I, I have deep faith and, and trust that what we've created will, will help someone. Amen. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, truly. I'm glad to be able to do it and be able to share what I've learned these last 34 slash five years. (laughs) Hey, this is Kara again. I'm back for a quick second to remind you that all of the articles or resources or places that Sarah and I talked about in this episode can all be found in the show notes over at levitalcoresalon.com, L-E-Vital-C-O-R-P-S-Salon.com. Did you dig this podcast or what Sarah Saxton Frump is doing at Peloton U? Then please show your support by sharing this podcast with at least one other human being. While it seems like a radically small step, it really is helping grow this podcast. It really is helping to amplify the work that these amazing women that take their time and sit down with me are doing out in the world. And Sarah is no exception. So let's cheer her on and let's bring some more eyes to her work. 
Before I bounce today, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to Kelly Lingard. She is a friend, a mentor, a sponsor, and the woman who connected me to Sarah so that this episode would be possible. Kelly, as always, you rock. I also want to give Craig Snyder, who produces these episodes and fixes all the levels and does his Pro Tools magic behind the scene, and also listens to me wax on and fire questions and talk out loud about how to steer the ship of the podcast. I also want to thank my assistant, Darlene Victoria, who really just helps me dot the I's, cross the T's for all of the little tiny online pieces and links that need to get where they need to go. And to Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the excellent theme song. And most importantly, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you. Until next time.